Hey, would you open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3, please? If you don't have a Bible, you should be able to find one in the pew rack in front of you, Daniel chapter 3. And I want to encourage you to take a few notes this morning. I want to encourage you to spend time with Daniel 3 in the week ahead also to go back and revisit, especially if this is your first encounter with it uh, in recent time. Uh, But Daniel chapter 3, a note page and a pen, you'll be in good shape today. Uh, It's a sad thing when things of the church become cliché. It's a sad thing when words that have tremendous power and hope in them become little more than clichés to us. Uh, Case in point, the word faith has in many ways and in different ways become cliché. So when we are in the midst of crisis and a loved one tells us to trust God or to have faith in God, it sometimes feels like empty advice. It feels like a cliche as if they're just telling us to wish on a star. When I'm in crisis, I don't want someone to give me a cliche. I want seven steps to get out of it. I want to know the exact thing I have to do. What, what work do I have to get done to get myself out of this crisis and on to the next thing? Uh, I don't need someone to just say, well, have faith. You might as well tell me to twiddle my thumbs. What I need is action. I need something concrete. I don't need something fuzzy uh, and blurry. But why not? What if that's exactly what we need is for someone to risk the cliche to tell us, have faith in God. In your crisis, in your battle with sin, in this struggle that you're going through, have faith in God. If God is real, and if he loves you, and if he knows you, then why wouldn't we make faith or trust in him an an essential part of our crisis response? Have you ever considered what it would be like or what it is like to not respond to crisis with faith in God? Look, if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, then you do not possess this type of saving faith, this trust in God. And so I want you to consider the burden you carry day by day. You are responsible to answer for your own sin and the shame and the guilt that comes with it. And you are carrying on your shoulders the burden of every day in your own strength, in your own wisdom. And I don't know about you, but I don't have a lot of strength, and I have even less wisdom to deal with those things. But even followers of Jesus struggle at times to believe God, to trust Him in moments of crisis or when it comes to our own personal battles with sin. And so what will happen is we trust Jesus to save us for all eternity, but we struggle to trust Him to save us in this situation. And so again, we heap all the burdens on our own shoulders. We try to get ourselves through the mess and our strength is small, our wisdom is smaller. Without faith in God, it's just impossible for us to do this. And so that's why we have a story like Daniel chapter 3 to teach us how to trust God and to remove the cliche from faith. Here in Daniel chapter 3, we're going to see these three boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Trust God in what is perhaps the most intense crisis of their young lives. Now, I know you're familiar with this story because you've watched Veggie Tales, but you need to root that cucumber out of your heart this morning 
And you need to listen afresh to the Word of God because there is hope here for you. Now, I don't know your story. I don't know what you drag in here today. And it doesn't matter if I know it. I know what's true about God. And what's true is that when we put our trust in Him, there is an unwavering hope we find. There's strength. There's courage. There's endurance. All that we need we find by trusting in the Lord. And so what I want to show you in Daniel chapter 3 this morning uh, are the ways in which faith is a benefit to us. Concrete ways in which trusting God benefits us. So that when we leave here today, I I want you to leave with a vision of this story in your head and the lesson learned that no matter the situation, I will trust the Lord. No matter what comes my way, what I'm in today, what comes tomorrow, I will trust God and hold on to him as he holds on to me. So I want to show you three benefits of faith in Daniel chapter 3, and I want you to follow along with me as I read. It's a long passage, probably been a while since you read through it, and so you're in for a treat this morning as we go through the whole chapter. And uh, if I could give you something to watch for as we read, maybe take note of how many times this story tells us Nebuchadnezzar set up the statue. How often do you see Nebuchadnezzar set up the statue? Follow along with me as I read Daniel chapter 3, starting in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue the king had set up. Then they stood before the statue Nebuchadnezzar had set up. A herald loudly proclaimed, People of every nation and language, you are commanded. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall face down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, Zither, lyre, harp, and every kind of music. People of every nation and language fell down and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, Lear, harp, drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Then, in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I have set up? 
Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage and his expre- the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary. And he commanded some of the best soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So these men in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Since the king's command was so urgent... In the furnace extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Then Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, look, I see four men not tied walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and called, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God, come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. When the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's advisors gathered around, They saw that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair of their heads was singed. Their robes were unaffected and there was no smell of fire on them. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I issue a decree that anyone of any people, nation, or language who says anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and his house made a garbage dump. For there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. Then the king rewarded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. What's the last time you read that? It's a great story. An incredible account of God's faithfulness in the faith of these three boys. And it teaches us something of the benefits of faith. It woos us to trust God, to believe Him when it comes to our sin or when it comes to crisis situations. So what are the benefits of trusting God, of having faith in Him? The first the story teaches us is this. Faith endures intense pressure. Faith endures intense pressure. Uh, So chapter 3 revolves around a statue. You remember last week, chapter 2, it also revolves around a statue. Uh, And do you remember what the statue in chapter 2 was like? Remember Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and this statue appears out of nowhere. And the statue in chapter 2 has a head of gold, a chest of silver, a belly of bronze, legs of iron, and then feet of iron and clay mixture 
And the gold head represented Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. This is his reign, his rule. And Nebuchadnezzar was pretty pumped about that, excited that he was the head of gold. But remember what Daniel told the king. He said, after you will rise another kingdom. Right? The head of gold has limitations, has a shelf life. And next up would be the chest of bronze, or excuse me, the chest of silver that will ascend to world power. So then in chapter 3, we find Nebuchadnezzar making his own statue. Chapter 2, he dreamed of a statue with a head of gold. In chapter 3, he makes his own statue head to toe out of gold. Do you think Nebuchadnezzar is trying to communicate something to us in this moment? You tell me I'm just a head of gold? Let me show you how it's really going to be. I'm not just the head. I'm the whole thing, baby. My kingdom, my reign shall be an eternal kingdom, an eternal reign. That's the kind of king that I am. Nebuchadnezzar is so brazen in his idolatry, brazen in his defiance against God. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, Daniel praised God by saying, God removes kings and establishes kings. But here in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar responds essentially by saying, I defy God and I establish gods. It's a big deal that this statue of gold is put in this place. Verse 1 tells us the location of the statue. It's in this place called the Plains of Dura. And this isn't the first time that we've read about the Plains of Dura. In fact, we read about it way, way back in Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11 references the plains of Dura as a location where another famous building project took place. Do you remember what it was? It's the Tower of Babel or the Tower of Babylon. It's in this same location where people united together to make a great name for themselves, to build a tower that stretched into the heavens. They would show God what great things we can accomplish. And in response to these egomaniacs, God diversifies their language and scatters them and foils their plants. And so don't miss what's happening here in Daniel chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar calls people of every nation and language together to the fields of Dura. And there he's going to unite them again, as they haven't been since Genesis chapter 11, around the worship of the false god he has set up. In the place where human pride led God to diversify languages and nations, Nebuchadnezzar is trying to gather them in a unified idolatry. So that's our setting. And it's in this scene that our boys face incredible pressure. They face pressure from everybody else in the story. First of all, they face pressure from the king himself. And that's not a small thing. Nebuchadnezzar, we, we have a bit of familiarity with him because of the story. Uh, and, so, and we see his failures and we see some of the ridiculous things he says. And so we might think of him uh, in lower terms than we ought to. This man's terrifying. He's a murderer. He's disgusting. He's a horror to people around him. And so when the king says, bow or be burned, everyone does what the king says. Now, we don't know the name or the identity of the God embodied in the statue. There's different options. It it could have been Nebuchadnezzar's God, whose name is Marduk, but we're not told that. 
It could have just been a generic deity, sort of a choose-your-own-God type of situation. You see, Nebuchadnezzar and his people are polytheistic. They believe in many different gods. And they're not exclusivists when it comes to gods. They're glad to add more gods to the pantheon of their gods. So it makes no difference. He sets up a statue. You want to call this statue Yahweh? Go for it. You can do that. You want to call it Baal? You want to call it Marduk? You want to call it Molech? doesn't matter. You call it what you want. Just do what Nebuchadnezzar says to do or you're going to be French fried. That's the thing. This pressure is intense. The threat of the king, the whole government, the whole kingdom saying, do this or else. The boys also face pressure from a group in the story, the group called the Chaldeans. Again, we've met them before in the book of Daniel. You'll remember them perhaps from chapter 2. The Chaldeans are a group of advisors to King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, They are part of this group of magic men who give advice to the king. The king calls on them to help interpret dreams and to give direction, to help him make decisions, all these things. And if it weren't for Daniel in chapter 2, and along with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those Chaldeans uh, would be six feet underground. Well, probably not six feet underground. They would have been chopped up into tiny bits by Nebuchadnezzar's executioner because of their failure to interpret the king's dream. But because of Daniel and his friends, their lives were saved. But here at this point in chapter 3, they express some jealousy, some anger, some hatred towards these Hebrew boys. Maybe they're jealous that the boys were put in positions of power over Babylon. And so they come to Nebuchadnezzar with accusations. Here's the funny thing about their accusations. They're not made up. They're not lies. They're totally true. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gods you've set up. That's a true statement. There's not a lie there. But still, here are advisors to the king working against these three boys, calling evil good and good evil. It's a pressure-packed scene. They face pressure from the king, pressure from the Chaldeans. I think they face pressure socially as well. It's not overt, but I think it's there in the story easy to see. You see, in verses 2 and 3, all the people gather. All, All the people gather. And then in verse 7, all the people worship. They hit their faces before the gold statue. Everyone does it. Even other exiles from Jerusalem who have been brought to Babylon, everyone bows before Nebuchadnezzar's statue. And I wonder if the boys heard any voices persuading them to just bow, just take a knee real quick. Guys, you're making way too big a deal out of this. Just pretend like it's your God and bow down. If you don't, you're going to die. You don't want to die. You have such an important job in the kingdom. Didn't God put you in this position? He wants you to keep that position. Why would you throw it away? You don't want to be on the wrong side of history in this moment. Everyone is together on this. Look how unified we all are in this moment. The whole world is together at this time. Who do you think you are to call us wrong? Just bow down. They face pressure from the king, from the Chaldeans, from the culture around them. Do Christians face these types of pressures today? A hundred percent we do. These things have not changed. Christians around the world face pressure to call evil good and good evil. 
Christians everywhere face pressure to compromise the gospel in the face of shifting popular opinions. Christians face pressure to abandon biblical values in favor of cultural movements. As I thought about this, I thought especially of middle school and high school students, thought also of college students. Uh, These groups face unique types of pressure where they go to school, where they form their friends, uh, where they're investing themselves. If you dare mention on a college campus that intelligent design is a viable option for the explanation of what is, you're immediately cast into the world of the cavemen and the fundamentalists, people who are anti-science. And that might be the smallest pressure someone would face on a college campus, pressures of all kinds face those who identify with Jesus Christ. But is public pressure the only kind of pressure Christians face? Not at all. We face a much more insidious pressure. It's a pressure from within. It's that pressure that pushes us to bend to temptation, to indulge sin in our lives, and thereby worship a false idol. Give our hearts to God's with a lowercase g. We're enticed to indulge in secret sin, to indulge our egos, or to tear people up with our words. To be honest, it might be a lot easier to say no to a giant golden public statue than it is to say no to the tempter inside my own heart and mind. It could be also that we relate to this story from an entirely different point of view. Maybe we don't relate to this story from the point of view of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but from the point of view of Nebuchadnezzar who set up his own idol. You see, you and I, we are quite capable as idol makers. Our idols are far more attractive than Nebuchadnezzar's gaudy, golden figure. But we wouldn't call them idols either. We would just call it providing for our family or career advancement or upgrading the things we have or our children's success. And those things in and of themselves aren't necessarily bad, but you and I have this unique way of taking created things and treating them as if they are God's. People and money always make for lousy God's. They will always let you down every time. Do not ask a person to be what only the Lord can be for you. You ask too much of that husband, that wife, that child, that thing when you ask them to be your God. Christians face pressure from outside and pressure from within. We face pressure from others and pressure from ourselves. We aren't so far removed from the plains of Dura, are we? But we also are not far removed from help either. When our day of testing comes, there's no need for us to be afraid, no need for us to uh, shake in terror or failure. But according to Paul, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, you and I, we're just these little tiny jars of clay, very fragile, prone to cracking And we are surrounded by pressure on all sides. But we belong to the God who raised Jesus from the dead and in every hardship glorifies Himself. Paul says, therefore, we do not give up. Because faith in God endures through intense pressure. Every trial, every difficulty finds endurance when we trust in God. 
Here's the second benefit of faith. We de-cliche it when we recognize in this story that faith has direction in the dark. Faith endures pressure and it has direction in the dark. Verses 16, 17, and 18 are the pivotal points in this entire story. The whole chapter revolves around these three verses. I would say the action points to these three verses as the apex of the story. Because the big question the story puts in front of us is, how are the boys going to respond? When all this pressure and all these threats are put on them, what are they going to do? Will they bow or won't they bow? And so look at their answer to Nebuchadnezzar in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Their answer to the king is very, very important. Uh, It focuses on God's ability and God's intent. These are the two things in focus in these verses, God's ability and God's intent. Now, if you have a different translation of the Bible, our pew Bibles and what I'm reading from is the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. If you have a different translation of the Bible, verse 17 reads a little different. If you've got an ESV or maybe you've got an NIV, something like that, uh, yours might say something along the lines of, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And that's a good translation. There's a difference of opinion among scholars about how to handle verse 17, at least this one phrase in verse 17. But regardless, look, don't get lost on that one phrase. The focus of verse 17 is the same across every translation. The focus is on God's ability. He can rescue or he is able to deliver that's the focal point of that verse they know what god can do he can rescue but verse 18 reveals they don't know what god will do verse 18 but even if he does not rescue us they're sure about his ability they're not sure about god's intent they look at the furnace and they know that with god nothing is impossible he's the god who created all things Out of nothing. He parted the Red Sea for Israel to cross on dry ground away from Pharaoh and slavery in Egypt. And he parted the Jordan River so that Israel could enter the promised land on dry ground as well. He gave them Jericho when they marched around the city. And he delivered his people from with Gideon's 300 soldiers alone against a vast army. He's the God who won a battle with David's slingshot. And what would their confidence in God do? What would it be like if they knew what you know? That a virgin named Mary gave birth to God in the flesh and his name was Jesus. He healed the sick, cast out demons, controlled the natural elements, all as signs pointing to his divinity. When he spoke, he spoke the words of God because he is God. And on Good Friday, he died in our place on the cross. And on Easter Sunday, he rose from the dead, affirming that everything he has said is true, that he is very God of God. And he promises to save every person that trusts in him. 
What if these boys knew that on top of all they had already seen and experienced and knew from God's Word? What if beyond that they knew Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 that says, God is able to do exceedingly above and beyond all we can think or imagine? Because they've got a vision of what God can do. King, we know what He can do. We don't know what He will do, but that doesn't matter. We know what's possible with Him. That's everything. Whether we burn or not doesn't matter. I know what my God can do. So we will not serve your gods. We will not worship the statue you've set up. They focus on God's ability. They also focus on their own obedience. We will not serve the gods you've set up. They don't know what God's going to do, but they know what God has said. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. The first of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You will have no other gods besides me. This is a test of first commandment faithfulness. We don't know what God's going to do, but we know what God has said. We'd rather take your fire for a moment than eat God's fire for eternity. King, your threats, your statue, your might, your power, your acclaim is nothing compared to the might and glory and majesty and righteousness of the God of all creation. You are a man with a funeral on the horizon. He's the eternal, everlasting God who knows me by name, who has covenanted with me. I will not worship your God. I don't know what he's going to do, but I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to obey. I'm going to stay faithful to Him. I'm going to hold to Him and His Word no matter what. Their concern was not in their deliverance, but in their obedience. God's faithfulness wasn't dictated by the outcome of the situation. God had already proven Himself faithful time and time and time again. To be in covenant relationship with Him is the greatest expression of God's faithfulness. It doesn't supersede the furnace. To have God be my God is the greatest miracle of all. So I wonder if this speaks to anyone today. I mean, I wish I had some people in here that believed the Bible. I don't know what God's going to do, but I know what he can do. I don't know the outcome, but I, I know my obedience. Sometimes we come into church and the old adage is, leave your garbage at the door so we can just come in and worship without distraction. And if you did that today, would you just get up now and go get your garbage and drag it back in here? And you make two trips if you have to, three trips maybe? Because this intersects real life. This is not the things of wishfulness and fuzzy thinking. This is me in the pit Trusting God no matter what. I don't know what he's going to do, but I know what he can do. Someone ought to write that in permanent marker on your bathroom mirror. And every morning, let this truth guide you. I don't know what he's going to do, but I know what he can do. I don't know what the outcome is, but I know what my obedience will be. And so quiz time. How many miracles take place in this story? On the quiz, you might mark one fiery furnace. And you would only get partial credit. Because the real miracle in this story is their first, first commandment faithfulness. 
I want you to look at what a writer named Walter Luthi says about this scenario. That there are three men who do not worship in Nebuchadnezzar's totalitarian state is a miracle of God. The miracle is the confessing church. That the three were not devoured by the fire is no greater miracle. Suppose the fiery furnace had consumed them. The real miracle would have happened just the same. And Don't you know it's been the story of God's people for ages that they have held to the Lord. They have maintained first commandment fidelity. And many have been killed by the sword and sawn in half and lost everything and lost loved ones and suffered horrible deaths because of their loyalty to the Lord. But the miracle has happened still the same. That in the face of insane, intense pressure, they hold to the God who holds them. The miracle is the confessing church. The miracle is the Christian who in the face of every temptation, every bit of suffering, says, I don't know what God's going to do, but I know what he can do. Faith has direction in the dark. Trust in God, obedience to his word. One last benefit of faith is that faith has company in the fire. Faith gives us endurance. Faith gives us direction. Faith gives us company in the fire. The boys have answered unequivocally. And this is the part of the story where the vein in Nebuchadnezzar's forehead starts to bulge and his eyes bug out and he goes ballistic. So he has the furnace heated way more than its normal temperature. The fire is so hot that the soldiers who escort the boys to the furnace, are consumed by the flames. Do you suppose those soldiers bowed to Nebuchadnezzar's statue when the music played? But Nebuchadnezzar's statue couldn't save them from the fire, could it? The three boys are thrown into the fire, and then Nebuchadnezzar can't believe his eyes. In verse 25, he yells, Look, I see four men not tied, walking around the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Who's the fourth man in the fire with these three boys? A couple of different options. One option, many faithful Christians and Christian scholars will say, well, this is an angel of the Lord. And they'll give some arguments based on the language to say that's, that's who this is. This is God's emissary. And it's not a small thing that the angel of the Lord appears and protects the boys and is seen in this moment. It's a big deal, a really big deal. And that's a faithful and and good interpretation. Another option is that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, God the Son. Now, I hope you spent some time with our sermon study guide this past week. There's a paragraph in it that deals with this very thing in a really helpful way. And if you didn't, I'd encourage you to download it from the website or there might still be a few on the stand when you walk out this morning. Grab it and take it with you. There's a lot of faithful evangelical scholars who look at the language of chapter 3 and the language of the book of Daniel and they conclude this is likely God the Son appearing in the furnace to protect the boys, to rescue them, to deliver them from Nebuchadnezzar's fire. Now, that's where I land. I, I, I love the thought that this is God the Son who has come to rescue, to save the boys. 
But it troubles me a bit, though, if, if that's the case, whether it's God the Son or the angel of the Lord. Why didn't Jesus just keep them out of the furnace altogether? Why didn't He show up just a few minutes earlier, put a stop to all that nonsense, just make it unequivocal who He is and who Nebuchadnezzar is not and what this statue's all about? But why didn't He show up and save the boys from the terrifying walk to the furnace? What was it like for them walking towards that oven while the men who held him captive burn alive? Why did he wait till they were in the furnace to show up? I don't know. But we should probably take note of the fact that he didn't keep them out of the furnace, but rather he found them in it. You see, our God has a way of permitting the hard day and finding you in it all the same. This has always been God's way to meet His people from within their hardship, to hear their prayer from within the fearful moment. Many, many years before this situation happened, many, many years before these boys were even born, God spoke through His prophet Isaiah, and He gave this promise to His people. In Isaiah 43, verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Fear not, for I am with you. He doesn't say, I'll keep you out of the water. I'll keep you away from the fire. He says, in the water, I'm with you. In the flame, I'm with you. God always finds His people in our hardship. He doesn't always deliver the way he did in Daniel chapter 3. But he does always find his people. We're never alone. He enters into our hardship and our suffering with us. He's the God that can't get close enough to his people. A Christian philosopher named Alvin Plantinga talks about this idea of God's presence in our suffering. It's a bit of a long quote, but I want you to see what Alvin says, he says, as the Christian sees things, God does, uh, God does not stand idly by, coolly observing the suffering of his creatures. He enters into and shares our suffering. He endures the anguish of seeing his son, the second person of the Trinity, consigned to the bitterly cruel and shameful death of the cross. Some theologians claim that God cannot suffer. I believe they're wrong. God's capacity for suffering, I believe, is proportional to his greatness. It exceeds our capacity for suffering in the same measure as his capacity for knowledge exceeds ours. Christ was prepared to endure the agonies of hell itself. And God, the Lord of the universe, was prepared to endure the suffering consequent upon his son's humiliation and death. He was prepared to accept this suffering in order to overcome sin and death and the evils that afflict our world and to confer on us a life more glorious than we can imagine. How do we know that's true? From the furnace all the way to the cross, Jesus enters into our suffering. He takes the pain. He takes the death. And by faith, we're saved. By faith in Him, we're set free. When we see the fourth man with the three boys in the furnace, it begs a question of ourselves has the fourth man found me? Has Jesus found you? 
His invitation is always open, and if you would give your life to him, you'll never be lost again. Faith is the focal point of Daniel chapter 3. And what difference does faith make? It's far from cliche because it gives us endurance and it gives us direction and it gives us company in the fire. I saw this lived out in the life of a precious saint several years ago. Uh, Several years ago, a sweet man named Charlie Hauser died and uh, did his funeral. And at his funeral, when it was finished, Um, At this particular funeral, people were dismissed to walk past the casket. And as they did, they had to walk past uh, his grieving widow, Jewel. Charlie, a wonderful believer. Jewel, a wonderful Christian woman. And the first couple that walked by, as they walked past Jewel, they patted her on the arm. But Jewel wouldn't let that go. She grabbed them by the arm. She stood up and she hugged their necks. And she told them how much it meant to her for them to be there that day. And she told them how much... Jesus loved them. And I'm standing 15 feet from Jewel. And Jewel's the type to not just do that for one person. And so it was the longest dismissal in the history of funerals because this little impromptu receiving line got set up. And every person that came by, she hugged their necks. And with a smile on her face and tears in her eyes, she spoke to them words of Jesus. A couple years later, uh, Jewel called me up and said, come here, we, we need to talk. And she told me that um, she had just been to see her doctor and she had been given some really bad news. And so uh, she described the meeting with the doctor. She had some of her family there with her. And uh, the doctor said to her, Jewel, here's what the tests have shown. Here's your diagnosis. And I'm sorry to tell you, you only have just a few weeks to live. Uh, And Jewel said that as it was a really heavy moment, and as the doctor was sharing this, the doctor started to cry. And Jewel said, dear, why are you crying? You haven't given me bad news. You've given me good news. I don't want to die, but I want to see Jesus. And so she got up and she hugged the sobbing doctor. And she told the doctor how much Jesus loved him. Now, Jewel Hauser wasn't a superhuman Christian. She was a common Christian woman who belonged to a great God. She trusted him no matter what. Have you learned the lesson of the furnace? By faith in God, we endure. By faith in God, we have direction. By faith in God, we're not alone. The fourth man has found us. Has he found you? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word to us. We know well the pressures that we face, pressures of many types from many directions, all of them intense, and their target is our faith. They want to destroy our faith. We've got an enemy that acts against us, that we would waver and fall. So I'm grateful that we can 
just get that reality out into the open, to demystify it, and to not feel alone with that pressure anymore, but to know it's the, the steady state of everyone that walks with you. But thank you for showing us the power of faith in these moments. We need you to help us with our unbelief. So Father, I pray, I ask you, please, uh, friends in here that don't know you as their Savior, let this be the day that they quit carrying this life on their own shoulders and in their own logic. Today, let them trust in the God who delivers, the God who is true, the God who knows his children by name. I pray for my brothers and sisters in the faith who are undergoing difficulties of many kinds, that no matter the situation, that we would hold fast to you. When marriage is not easy, when parenting is a challenge, when grief is overwhelming, when, we are, when our strength is in short supply, Lord God, let us trust you. We don't know what you're going to do in these situations, but we know what you can do because we've seen it. We've seen it at the cross and at the empty tomb. We know what you can't do. And so, Lord, let us trust you. Let us walk in your word. Let us live as those who have been found by the fourth man, who is God with us, Emmanuel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.